Welcome to Life Extension. Life Extension is my series where I interview the scientists and pioneers of longevity. We're investigating the new frontiers of longevity for people and planet. Dr. Bjorn Schumacher at the University of Köln in Germany is one of the world's leading authorities on cellular repair, well, on DNA damage and DNA repair. And if you've been hearing about this in the popular literature about taking some kind of medicine or sleeping more, well, let's get into it. And uh, we'll also talk about the Yamanaka factors and his book, The Mystery of Human Aging. wonderful to have you. We can start just by getting to know a little bit you and your background and how you came to this field. There's a theme that is longevity, but perhaps when you got started, you didn't define your research aims that way. You were a biologist in the beginning. It's a very interesting development that this field has taken. So I became interested in the biology of aging already when I was in high school in biology class, because it was an unresolved problem. Nobody really thought about it. And so the biology was completely unclear. And yet it's an issue that is reality for all of us, whether we realize it early or late, uh, we're aging all our lives. And so we are subjected to that biology. And I thought it would be really important to find out why we actually age. And so that's actually a big reason why I became a biologist, because the answer to why we age is clearly an answer, a question to biology. The answer has to come from biology. And so I studied biology at a time where aging research was really marginal. I studied in the late 1990s, and there was really only an emerging field of aging. It was really very descriptive for a very long time. And that has changed completely in the last uh, decade or so. The field right now is ripe, it's thriving, it uh, gave us so much new insights that we haven't even dreamed of, I think, 30 years ago. It's interesting, actually, that many of the folks who work on longevity and aging-related subjects, their story starts with perhaps their first exposure to biology. I mean, the story of being in high school, of being 14, 15 years old, I've heard it from researchers around the world now. I find it quite curious. Maybe everyone who goes into science finds it at that moment. I mean, can you put your finger on why it would be at that time? Is it just because it was your first exposure to biology around that time? That's when you f- first learn it as a subject, right? And you think, oh, weird. Biology is talking about all these processes, but it's not talking about the most obvious thing. I mean, even development is pretty well studied when you learn biology, but aging is completely obvious and it's not well described when you first encounter it. Absolutely. I think people didn't really think about aging so much of an interesting biological problem for a very long time because Obviously, the fascinating question is, how does a fertilized egg become a human? It's an obviously very exciting and interesting question that people have uh, thought about for a very, very long time. And so, yes, developmental biology, evolutionary biology, all these things were really explored for a long time. And then what's really fascinating about aging, it's the very pathways that regulate development that actually determine aging. So the first pathway ever found early 1990s, beginning of aging research, Cynthia Kenyon, who discovered these long-lived worms that had a mutation in insulin-like signaling pathway that really is a bona fide developmental growth pathway. And that turns out to be important for aging. 
when we study development, we can learn a lot about aging as well because it's the very same processes that go awry when we age. I guess evolution, how did different species form and certainly development, you know, how does one organism spawn? And I mean, it seems like magic and so it seems like there's a lot to understand. Maybe there's just a naive theory of aging that we walk around with that seems so simple that maybe there's nothing to understand, right? The naive theory of aging is that things break down over time. And in some ways, it seems like a big a thrust in the aging field, that is what aging is, that there is just stochastic kind of noise that accumulates damage, and that is aging. Is that naive theory roughly correct, or is it missing something very important? Absolutely. Aging is a process that just happens by default. The opposite of aging is what needs regulation, development, growth, maintenance of tissues. And all that is under strong selection. These, the maintenance of our functionality, of our organism, of our body, has, is governed by our genetic makeup. And that, in turn, is, is a, a, a product of our evolutionary history where we only needed to have ma- our bodies maintained for as long as it took to transfer our genetic information to the next generation. And of course, as humans, make sure the next generation can take over. So there are also some transferred skills, right? And so that is really the time when our repair and maintenance functions really keep us healthy. Everything that's after that, that has not been under selective pressure, that's deterioration, that's aging, that is really where things are not maintained properly enough. If you just imagine up until 150 years ago, our life expectancy was in the mid-30s. That's the time when we are really well maintained, where our repair functions are really precisely functioning. But after that, it's an extra time that we have nowadays because we eliminated all our extrinsic sources of uh, mortality, at least many of them. And uh, so now we see what, uh, how far our gene pool that has really been selected for the first few decades of life, how far they get us beyond that. So restoration, regeneration later in life. I mean, it's an interesting, it's a kind of a strong claim, I guess, you know, in biology to say that evolution has ignored something, which I think is a little bit your point, right? It's like, well, evolution didn't have a chance to work on people who are 60 years old for very long. You must agree that to say that, you know, evolution didn't notice something to a biologist perhaps is a, that's a pretty strong claim, right? I mean, normally you assume evolution has noticed everything. Evolution is smarter than us in general, right? It had many more cycles, much longer time. But you don't think it's a little bit too strong? You think it's just clear that this is a scenario that here's the counter scenario, right? Perhaps a different point of view, that this would be the programmed aging point of view that at a population level or a species level, it's uh, above the individual and above the gene, of course. But in this population level, it's advantageous for these populations to have certain parts that age. And so those populations can prosper, right? And so you would say, well, no, evolution has actually carefully designed aging. It is a programmed decline. It doesn't work because uh, on the one side, it's group selection. So a cheetah who doesn't age would then just uh, outlive everybody else. On the other side, it's circular because uh, aging would not evolve because there's aging. There cannot be any programmed aging. There can be mutations that can that have adverse effects late in life. They can become lifespan limiting. In fact, Evolutionary theory would predict that there are many of us of those mutations that have detrimental effects late in life because they have not been counterselected. 
if you have a gene that is detrimental early in life, even before reproduction, there are actually human disorders, rare genetic diseases, where the patients age within the first decade of their life. Such a genetic trait would clearly get extinct because there's no reproduction or time for reproduction. But if you have an adverse effect that occurs at the age of 80, there would be no counter-selection because nobody, uh, reproduction at the age of 80 is just irrelevant. It just never happened in our evolutionary history. So it would just not be seen. So yes, we have many genetic variants that can limit lifespan. Uh, mm. One example for that is the famous example of ApoE4, which is disease risk factor for Alzheimer's disease, a specific form of this ApoE, and that's associated with early onset Alzheimer. But it's at an age that has been largely irrelevant in our evolutionary history. So these things just have accumulated, these type of mutations. So let's talk about mutants. I mean, I guess, you know, this famous worm contributes a lot to, uh, the nematode worm contributes a lot to our understanding of aging, right? And, and this is your favorite target, I suppose, as well, right? And the stories of these worms that may be the mutants and then some that have been manipulated, I mean, this is kind of the, the real place where the action is, right? Where we're making discoveries that are really challenging our understanding about how aging can work or how it can be manipulated. These things are living 10 times longer in some cases or even more. Introduce us a little bit, please, to um, this famous worm. Yeah, so the worm is uh, C. elegans. It's about one millimeter long when it's fully grown. So uh, you need a microscope to see it, but it lives everywhere in, the, in your garden earth, in rotting fruit uh, particularly. And it's really the workhorse of aging research. Why is that? Because the worm is simple. It has only not even a thousand uh, somatic cells. It has a relatively short lifespan. Uh, it lives in the lab about three weeks. And it has the same genetic mechanisms of longevity that we have as humans. Although it's so much more, much simpler, it has genetic pathways that also in humans are very relevant for aging. And in fact, very first mutants were discovered that had an extraordinary extension of lifespan. And these realizations that there are genes that can impact lifespan, that there's a genetic process that could be altered to have an impact on health span, on lifespan, that really made aging a field of modern biology. And the worm still nowadays is really a premier organism to study aging because aging is a very complex process. You have to imagine that everything in the body can falter in the aging process. There are, of course, hierarchies of mechanisms, but the human aging process is extraordinarily complex, so we can learn a lot from the simple animal, also how different cell types interact with each other, how they communicate, how a germline and the soma, so the body and the germ cells interact with each other. These are all things that we can study in this simple organism. And it is really surprising how conserved these mechanisms are. We then look into mice and into humans, and we find exactly the same mechanism that were identified in the worm. So it's a fabulous model organism. Tell us then a little bit more about the mutations, and then um, we can perhaps explore from there. I mean, so these first mutations, what did we learn? Yeah, so the very first mutations were mutants that were called DAF, D-A-F for dower formation. And that tells you already a lot about adaptations of longevity. Because in this worm, the worm has a 
the starvation process where it enters the so-called Dauerlave, Dauer from lasting, a German word for lasting, and this Dauer can outlive a normal worm by 10 times. These starvation forms, these Dauerlave, can live extremely long. They're extremely resistant, resilient to any form of stress. And what is really amazing is they can switch back to become a normal adult worm and live a completely normal lifespan, have completely the full set of their 300 offspring as if it hasn't aged a day. That's an example in nature of enormous plasticity of aging. And some of these daft mutants then also not only can live extremely long as dawas, but also live very long as normal adult animals. So they can double the lifespan of a normal adult and not only is their lifespan doubled, but also their health span is increased. So while a normal worm would already, after one or two weeks, be really old and sick, such a mutant can really be still healthy, still move, still fulfill all of its function. And the very first of such genetic mutants was in the insulin-like growth factor signaling. And insulin-like signaling is a very conserved uh, pathway. It regulates body growth in the worm, in mammals, in humans. And so this has really become a cornerstone of mechanisms that regulate longevity. And over the course of the past few decades, additional pathways have been, signaling mechanisms have been identified that in worms as well as in mammals regulate longevity. So let's see if I understood that well. You were calling it an insulin-like pathway. So the worm mm -hmm. clearly has a different regulator for how it manages energy. And it was that first mutation was related to that insulin pathway. And it, such a dramatic effect comes from only that change in the way it uses its, its energy production. So that is really the amazing thing. It's one mutation in one gene and the lifespan is doubled. And it's... And the first one was the receptor. Receptors are the eyes and ears of every cell. It receives uh, signals such as growth factors from the organism and then regulates whether a cell divides, whether a cell rests, whether it uh, expresses certain genes. And this extension of lifespan was mediated by a transcription factor. It's called DAF16. In humans, it's FOXO3A. And this transcription factor now in this mutant is hyperactive. It goes into the nucleus. It switches on a, a whole plethora of genes that then make a cell extremely stress-resistant and long-lived. And so it's really this gene expression program that is really important for being able to outlive anybody else. That's really fascinating. And I guess it feeds the sketch of the theory that you've given that it's about regeneration and restorative behaviors at the cellular level against this inevitable damage that's accumulating, right? So it's not that this mutation is slowing down a process of decay, rather it's energizing a self-defense system. This is very fascinating is that we know that DNA damage is really a driver of aging because the DNA, the genome, encodes everything that a cell does and every function that it fulfills. And the DNA is constantly attacked 
by genotoxins, whether it's radiation from the outside or normal metabolism. And so there's an accumulation of DNA damage that leads to this functional loss and aging. And now we found that this insulin-like signaling, this longevity pathway response to the DNA damage leads to the activation of this DAF16, this Foxor transcription factor, and then induces the same longevity, the pro-longevity program. And it makes cells resistant to the DNA damage that inevitably accumulates. So it mediates tolerance to this onslaught of DNA damage buildup and makes cells and the organism resilient, tolerant to DNA damage, raising a threshold until when DNA damage accumulation and aging can be tolerated. So there's a really link between the mechanisms, the drivers of aging, and the modulators of the aging process. This is right in the square. This is right in the center of the research that you do in your lab. Yeah. I mean, do you want to elaborate a little bit on some of the discoveries that you guys are responsible for? Absolutely. These longevity responses to DNA damage that we have uh, identified are really linked to fundamental mechanisms of aging. The DNA damage accumulation and these longevity pathways that can modulate aging, and they are really intricately uh, linked with each other. And so we really propose that there are two strategies of longevity. One is DNA repair. DNA repair is absolutely essential for living the lifespan that we live as humans. We know that we, there are patients that are born sometimes with a single mutation in one DNA repair gene, and they can age with the first decade of their life. They have the same pathologies that we get when we're 80, 90 years old, when they are eight or nine years old. And the reason for that is that the DNA damage in their somatic cells, in their body cells, they build up very, very rapidly. You have to imagine that each cell of our body experiences tens of thousands of DNA damaging events every single day of our life. We have to repair them constantly, every minute, every second of our life. The DNA damage has to be repaired. If there's a defect, then aging occurs very, very early on in childhood already. And with neurodegeneration, with atherosclerosis, all the normal pathologies of aging, renal failure, all these things happen already during childhood in teenage. And so it's a really fundamental mechanisms of aging. And so we need our repair system to live as long as, as we can. We're currently working on new concepts of how can we enhance DNA repair. That will play a very big role in the future. Now, the second strategy of how you can extend longevity are these longevity assurance mechanisms. I mentioned the insulin-like signaling pathway, the DAF16 FOXO transcription factor. These do something profoundly different that we found. They raise the threshold until when DNA damage can be tolerated. They are much more simple to modulate because it's just a signaling pathway that you can target with inhibitors, for example, and you can really modulate until when DNA damage can be tolerated. So you can give an extra time for cells and tissues to function. These are really the two big mechanisms of how lifespan can be maintained. I want to pause for a minute here and talk to you about Life Extension Ventures. It's the reason I'm doing this series for In The Know. Life Extension Ventures is a venture fund dedicated 
to working towards the longevity of people and planet. The future of humanity depends on our planet surviving and its potential can really only be unlocked if we focus on some of the technologies, some of the breakthrough science that's making it possible for us to live longer and better lives. Life Extension Ventures is a venture fund focused on supporting visionary founders that are working towards longevity of people and planet. It's the future of humanity that they're working on and we want to back them. I spent a lot of time as a science person, as an academic, as a student, and then I spent even more time becoming a company builder and venture investor. And with Life Extension Ventures, I'm bringing both of those things together with my partner, Inyaki Berenger. It's got a similar story. And we're out there finding folks who want to build companies that can really make a difference for human life. We'll need this planet if we want to survive, and we'll need to focus on these breakthrough technologies if we really want to unlock human potential. So here we are doing it and sharing with you in this episode is uh, some of the breakthrough science that we've been learning about and trying to back. Let's talk about the second one a little bit more. I'm not sure if I fully follow. I mean, it sounds magical. Sure, increase the threshold, you know, that the cells and tissues can function. And there must be different strategies for it. We're not fixing the DNA. We're asking the cell to deploy some strategies intracellular, perhaps, that what is it doing? I mean, how is it protecting itself? So there's a whole program of gene expression that is then driven by this longevity transcription factor, DAF16. We identified about 450 genes. They are switched on then, and they mediate this enormous resistance to stress of these cells. This works particularly well in post-mitotic cell types. So cells that have differentiated, that fulfill a certain function. In C. elegans, the entire soma of the anim of an adult animal is post-mitotic. In humans, post-mitotic cells are particularly important in the brain, but also in many other tissue types. But in the brain, neurons, we are born with the neurons that we still have when we are old. They have to last our entire life. And so here, maintenance is extremely important. This is the goal here for these post-mitotic cell types in humans for the neurons to prevent their degeneration, to allow them to function longer. The same mechanisms can have different consequences in highly proliferated cell types. They actually require all these growth factors that are bad for the terminally trans differentiated uh, cell types because they require constant driving of their proliferation, of their renewal. So it is very well possible that the targets, the longevity strategies for a, a regenerative tissue versus a terminally differentiated cell type might be quite different. And, but one of our biggest challenges in aging is really how can we maintain neuronal function? How can we prevent neurodegeneration? And here, these mechanisms are particularly important. The uh, topic of cellular aging, which is where we are now, I think probably, I think there's a bunch of different families of aging researchers, but I guess where a lot of the excitement is and where I think a lot of she is, is around senescence cells and their senescence or how to clean them up and remove them and this sort of family of, of problems. And I guess you're describing two different strategies. One is repairing the DNA, but you described mutants. You didn't quite describe uh, gene therapies yet. 
and um, the other is activating the self-defense systems in there. And I guess you were also referring to maybe the Yamanaka factors or something with these differentiated cells, these other approaches that you wouldn't want to put them on your brain because you put them on your neurons and then everything sort of melts back into some undifferentiated state and then it's not working for you, right? So there's certain organs or certain sets of cells where you might want to create this stem cell-like behavior. And on other cells, you actually need to protect them as they are. Otherwise, you're destroying their function. So these are three families, right? So maybe we can talk about each of these families a little bit. It seems like the one that's closest to your research is the second family here where we're activating all the DAP16-like responses. Are we getting a bit closer on these with, I don't know, bigger models than C. elegans? I mean, with mice, with people? I mean, I know that you've written for popular audiences as well. You have a book that maybe you should also mention your book and make sure that people have a chance to find it on Amazon. It's called The Mystery of Human Aging, right? Tell us like these three areas of anti-aging and especially starting first with the self-defense stuff. Are we see so has it come from the lab a little bit closer to us? Oh yes, absolutely. So I think there are these mechanistic insights that we as basic scientists generate have really provided a very solid basis now for developing therapies. Clearly the the maintenance of differentiated cells is very important. Understanding that different tissues have slightly different biologies, different therapy targets, I think it's also very important. There's not this quick fix that works for everything. I think there's a a lot of exciting news that can be now developed into real therapies. We, for example, now work on enhancing DNA repair. That's really our future strategy because there we can come in at the very fundamental level of aging, really the, the basic driving mechanism which has been elusive so far because it's just too complex, too many dealer repair mechanisms. So I think there we will see very exciting development. In this resistance mechanisms, there will be there we require very targeted therapies. So when we think about, for example, FOXODAF 16, the insulin-like signaling, this will have very different effects on stem cell compartments versus differentiated cell types. So there need to be a targeting for that. And I think the real vision of aging research is this preventive medicine. That means that we functionally maintain the organism. And this to really bring this into the clinic, that is still a regulatory problem to some extent because you need to have really the endpoints of biological aging that you can measure in a clinical study. And this is very important. I think that's a trend that we are seeing at the moment. That's happening right now, where you do have biological aging clocks that are being developed. They are not yet in a state where they are clinically validated, although they're used a lot, in particular in research, in non-clinical settings. But we will need to transform them now really into real clinical tests to be able to really study the effect of drugs, of anti-aging drugs on pro-longevity treatments. And I think it's more on that part that we really need to take our basic biology now into humans and really see how can we best maintain health span, can we best also tailor, have tailor-made therapies for specific disease risks and for different cell types, maintain them, replace them, there will be different strategies, but I think we are now in a very, we need to really merge basic biology with clinical application here. Are there some resistance mechanisms that we see as relevant to humans now? I mean, in the field, there are perhaps, I don't know, I mean, like calorie restriction seems to be like a widely consensus 
strategy. It's unclear that it'll extend. If you start doing it at age 60, it's unclear that it'll really help you much, but it seems to be considered. Is that its mechanism of action, that it improves the resistance of cells? It's similar to this insulin? Absolutely. So calorie restriction is really the oldest intervention that we know. It was found already in, in rats in the late 1920s. And you might wonder why, if we know it for 100 years, nobody's really doing it. It's not only that we know it functions, we know since 1929 that it works in rats. No, we know it works in about every species that has, has been tried. So the argument for calorie restriction is really compelling. But there's a big caveat. And the caveat is that in every one of these species where it works, it works in a narrow optimum. You cannot drive it too far. You get malnutrition, and that's much worse than overeating. It's a narrow window. And of course, in a laboratory setting, I can define this window extremely well. I can have a genetically inbred population that is genetically almost identical. I can have the same very controlled environmental conditions. So I can know exactly for this strain of mice, this type of calorie restriction extends lifespan. Now, humans are, that's a whole different ballgame because here in humans, every one of us is slightly different. Every one of us has a slightly different genetic makeup. Every one of us has a different epigenetic trajectory in their lives. So we cannot define one optimum of calorie restriction that would work for everybody. We need to individualize that. Now, how do we do that? We cannot try out. You cannot try out for five years to do one type of calorie restriction and the next half a decade you do something else. That's not how it's going to work. So here we need really these aging biomarkers, these clocks and things like that, that to robustly uh, respond to the health benefits of something like calorie restriction. To really decide and to be really able to judge what is healthy for me, because I cannot just wait for 20 years to find out whether I have lived a healthy life or not. This is just no option. We need immediate biomarkers that are individualized. And so yeah. that I think is a big hold up on why something as simple as calorie restriction is actually much more complex when it comes to human implementation. That's frustrating. I mean, yeah. if even the most widely known, the least expensive, it's so hard to implement. Yes, but we're getting there. We're getting there. We have now, there are now aging biomarkers. They are very new, these clocks that uh, Steve Horvath uh, for the first time designed. They are being developed to a state where I think we have a very good chance to have really reliable biomarkers in the very near future on that. Again, I think they should be really clinically validated to have really reliable biomarkers that respond to these interventions. That's one thing. The other thing is that, of course, the calorie restriction, like any other diet, doesn't work because nobody follows a diet. So here, the, the exciting news is that we have clearly learned that calorie restriction works exactly as you said. It triggers stress responses in the cells. And this goes via molecular mechanisms, molecular targets of calorie restriction. The famous example for that is the TOR pathway. TOR signaling stands for target of rapamycin. And there you have it already. Rapamycin is a drug that does the same as calorie restriction, inhibits the same molecular target that is also inhibited by calorie restriction. And the consequence is a stress response program of the cell. The resilience of the cell is induced, and that's how it functions. And then we know, yes, we can actually 
instead of this completely unspecific calorie restriction, we can actually develop a drug that does the same. Therefore, as caveats, rapamycin is an immune suppressor, so it itself is unlikely to really be a, a preventive long-term treatment. But there are a lot of developments now trying to make it more specific to mitigate potentially immunosuppressive consequences. And so there's a real opportunity to have drugs here. So these two things are important to keep in mind, measuring the therapeutic effect in terms of longevity and have a molecular targeting of these uh, stress response mechanisms. So which strategies for measurement do you think are the most promising at the moment? I guess there's epigenetic signals to measure, but there's so many other things, right? You might measure proteins or, I don't know, you might look at just appearance or um, maybe there's more traditional measures like cardiovascular health and metabolic health and things like that. So which, which are the promising ones for us at the moment? So there has been a whole development of uh, uh, trying to have aging biomarkers. So the initial ones were really physiological parameters. And it was already about a decade ago realized that if you just combine enough physiological measures, let's say lung function, cholesterol levels, fat content, and uh, blood pressure, all these things, if you combine one and a half dozens of such physiological parameter, you actually get a pretty good sense of your biological age. With the advent of more modern technologies, epigenetic marks, methylation marks, so specific chemical groups that are deposited on the DNA, became a very precise measure because you can just measure so many. of. There are 28 million possible sites that can be modified in such a way in our genome, and you can measure a whole lot of them at the same time. And so that's where a different number, sometimes a few hundreds of those sites can give actually a, a pretty good estimate of aging. It has become also relatively inexpensive to measure quite an, a number of those sites. So these are the most advanced aging clocks currently, are these epigenetic clocks. It's not entirely clear what they have to do with the genes that regulate aging. Sometimes they are far away from any gene, these sites that are measured. There are also proteome clocks that also are quite precise. The caveat of proteome clocks is that the methodology is much less standardizable than for methylations, for example. And there are transcriptome clocks where you can actually directly measure gene activity, which are also very precise. And uh, this is one development that we have also made. We have made a transcriptome clock that has a very high precision. It tells us immediately what are the underlying genes of that. Methodologically, it's a little bit more complex than just measuring methylation, but technology is developing all the time. Here, the advantage is it tells us immediately the underlying genes. And the vision there is really to have then also individualized aging clocks that tells you precisely about risk of specific age-related diseases. Fascinating. We have not connected, however. So, you know, we've been talking about perhaps topics closer to your field, but I'm curious about your opinion about some of these adjacent areas. And I guess one of the trendy ones is senolytics and targeting senescent cells and just removing them, right? Instead of helping them stay young. Is it a promising strategy? Is it just one that's been around a long time and for some reason it's trendy at the moment? Or I'm curious for your, your view. Yeah, cellular senescence is a very interesting field. It was, in fact, the very first realization that aging is an intrinsic property of uh, human cells. When Leonard Hayflake found 
the Hayflick limit where cells inevitably enter cellular senescence. And senescence comes from the Latin word for aging, so it's really cellular aging what it describes. Cell biology, it's really the when cells stop dividing and just hang around. And it was always thought they do nothing anymore, but actually they are still metabolically active and they secrete factors, senescence-associated secretory phenotype, it is called, where they now secrete cytokines that can actually be damaging for the organism. And indeed, then, when the senescent cells are actually eliminated, either by a genetically engineered approach or now by a number of different drugs that can drive the cell death of senescent cells, then mice showed an extension of their lifespan and several pathologies were mitigated by the elimination of the senescent cells. So that is, of course, a very, very promising type of approach where you eliminate this pro-inflammatory source of cytokines, which are senescent cells. And this will be very interesting how much benefit that has, because obviously senescent cells are also naturally turned over. They're eliminated by our endogenous mechanisms, where the immune system plays a role there. The senescent phenotype is also not entirely so well defined, because different cell types have different types of senescence that are all then measured by assessed by the same account by the same very limited essays where we can actually measure cellular senescence there's still a lot of development to really judge for example which type of senescent cells you should eliminate maybe there are other types that you should not eliminate there could be side effects of that of eliminating the wrong cell types for example so i think there's a lot of work still to be done to really have precise removal of pathological senescent cells, and not necessarily of everything that expresses a senescence marker. So in, as in all things on our subject here, it's quite, it seems to be quite complicated. We don't yet have a, a very simple remedy that we can take. You target the wrong ones, target the wrong time, and you're making yourself older, faster, or sicker unexpectedly in, in all these horrible ways. But, but maybe for the next few minutes and, and to leave the, the laboratory and now find, okay, well, what, what should we do, right? You've written for the popular audience. I'm sure you're frequently asked. You've spent more time on the topic of aging than virtually anyone who is alive. Well, I mean, if you can't even do calorie restriction, surely there are a few things that your average person might think are good ideas to deploy in their own life, whether it's just certain behaviors or maybe there are some nutrition or supplement type things. Which ones do you think are the most core, the most consensus, the most reasonable bets to take if you're in search of a longer lifespan? The good news of aging research is there's a lot we can do to stay healthy longer, to live longer, healthy lives. Yes, I describe uh, a lot of also these things, not only basic mechanisms, but also the things that we can already do in my book, The Mystery of Human Aging, because there are many interventions we can do. We can have a healthy lifestyle. And uh, here it's very important that we have a combination of these healthy lifestyle measurements that we take. Yes, we can reduce our calorie intake already without getting sick. We can already in our own feeling, uh, determine that we can eat a little bit less and we will stay healthier. Obesity is a pandemic that each of us needs to watch out that what food we are consuming 
that we stay healthy. But it's not enough to just have an intervention based on food and on, on calorie intake. We also need to have an active lifestyle. The combination between that is very important, that we do regularly sports, not running a marathon, not injuring our knees and joints, but to do healthy exercise that's, of course, individualized. And we can already assess a lot about whether we're doing healthy sports or not healthy sports. There are a lot of aids that we can take, like, for example, trackers, fitness trackers and things like that, where we can really get also an immediately reward for what we are doing, because you have to realize that aging is our lifelong trajectory. So it's not enough to just live healthy for one week and then, you know, go back to being a couch potato. No, we have to have lifelong healthy lifestyles. But this is not how our reward system in the brain works, because our reward system is very short term. We cannot plan long term. Otherwise, nobody would ever take up smoking if we had any long term plan of our, the consequences of our doing. This is why we need to trick ourselves to have something that we get an immediate reward after exercising, after whether it's intermittent fasting that you choose to do, whether it's reducing your calorie intake have some immediately benefits of it, have some reward in terms of something that tells you now I've walked my 15,000 steps a day, because it's extremely important that you commit to a lifelong healthy lifestyle. And you can start this anytime, even in old age, there are still benefits of having a healthier lifestyle, of reducing calories, of exercising regularly. It works at every age, the earlier, the better, of course. Avoid needless risk and of injury. Exercise seems like a good idea, but perhaps not to excess. Less calories seems like a safe bet. You're not trying to starve yourself, I guess. You don't want to get into the range of malnutrition. I think that would be very difficult for most people to end up with a, that level of calorie restriction, right? I mean, unless you really got obsessed with it and had some kind of disorder. So those all seem pretty safe. If you follow some of the sort of frontier kind of experimenters, there's folks that are trying lots of different supplements, right? There's NAD and metformin, and there's all these polyphenols, there's resveratrol, and I don't know, maybe there's just multivitamins, you know, some of those things you should have. Uh, you want to talk about those a little bit, antioxidants and all that. There's so many, I don't know, trendy supplements, and they change from time to time. And if you buy all of them, eventually you have 50 different pills to take. So do you want to give a little bit of your opinion there? There are plenty of supplements. The supplement market is also not particularly regulated. So there's a lot of stuff that you can buy, a lot of stuff you can just sell and get via Amazon. The problem with that is that it's untested on its long-term effects on human health. And when you think about antioxidants, some of these vitamins, for example, it actually turns out some of them can also have adverse effects. So sometimes oxidative stress is actually required to have a beneficial effect for exercise, for example. Exercise is actually stress, and it only works when you have a burst of oxidative stress in the muscle that comes with normal exercise. If you suppress it by taking at the same time antioxidant vitamins, for example, you won't have the beneficial effects on your muscles. So these strategies of just taking all kinds of different supplements that are not clinically tested, I think it's in, to some degree, maybe it has so little effect that it also doesn't have much side effects, but everything that has an effect also has a side effect. And if you want to take things long-term, 
you might face side effects that have not been seen in short-term studies where this might have been uh, previously established. So I think there's a caveat to all that. Also, in terms of purity of some of these compounds, whether the producer that you're using is really uh, the most reliable and rigorous ones in producing them. It's something that's very difficult to judge for the consumer, unless they are really seriously clinical studies with that are blinded, that are fulfilled criteria of a real study. I would be skeptical with most of these supplements. Well, that's a very important warning. It's far too easy to be, uh, well, and you know, many of the folks that are, they have a lot to gain when they recommend these things. Many of them are, are selling, they're, they're selling the drug. Bjorn, it's been so fascinating talking with you about your research from the humble worm all the way to its consequences for, uh, I guess, our, all of humanity, really. And I mean, the groundbreaking work that you're doing. Thank you so much for taking time to speak with us about it. Well, it's a great pleasure speaking to you. 